Our second reading is from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 20. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us, by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now, tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people of this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him, so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The word of the Lord. So normally this is the part of the sermon when a minister is supposed to tell a good joke or a story, but we're not going to do that. Jesus' final week in Jerusalem, that's where we start. It's the beginning of Lent, and during the season of Lent, we're going to be looking at the final week of Jerusalem, pointing towards the cross, and then ultimately what happens on that Easter morning. Jesus' final week in Jerusalem, he shows up, according to verse 1, in the temple. This is the central place in the, not only Jerusalem, but all of Israel. All of their worship is centered on this place. He's there most likely daily teaching and preaching. He's preaching the gospel and explaining this upside down kingdom that he has come to inaugurate. The chief priests and the scribes, the authorities if you would, they find him and they challenge him. They ask him directly, tell us by what authority you do these things or who is it that gave you this authority? Now, Jesus, if you read the Gospels up to this point, has been in Galilee, far away rural country, away from Jerusalem, the center. There wasn't CNN, there wasn't the internet, so no one really knew what was going on over there. And in that place, in Galilee, he was teaching with authority. He was healing people. The power of the Spirit was on him, and his authority was clear to the point where in most villages, the rabbis were somewhat scared of him. They knew his authority inherently. 
But in Jerusalem, it's the place where the political leadership reigns. And in the Jewish world, the chief priests were the political leaders. They were the most respected, most powerful people in all of the land. They took their authority and the central role of the temple, which was the only way you could, you could connect with God. If you want to connect with God, you've got to come to the temple, and they as the chief priests were the gatekeepers. We're the ones who tell you how you can gain access to God through us, through this temple. And basically, they took their role and everything for granted. So as Jesus comes and begins teaching with some level of authority in a way that's undermining what they're talking about, some gospel that it allows everyone in, that no longer needs a sacrifice in the temple. The chief priests are offended and a little bit nervous. So what they intend to do is to shame Jesus publicly by discrediting him and casting doubt on his authority. So they ask him directly, what's the source and scope of your authority? Basically, they're saying, you have no status or title here. You're not a chief priest. You didn't go to the schools that we did. You're not of the bloodline that we are. Who do you think you are? Jesus answers them with that whole kind of series about John the Baptist. Whose authority does he, where, where does he get his authority? But then what goes on, if you read the rest of, John, of Luke chapter 20, is that they send a series of interrogators in order to, to challenge Jesus and in his authority. First, they begin to ask him political questions, taxes. Should you give money to Caesar or not? Then they ask him theological questions. What about the resurrection? There were disagreements within Judaism about the resurrection. Ultimately, he turns the tables on them. You know, the Bible says the Messiah to come will be David's son, but in Psalm 110, it says that he will be David's Lord as well. How is that? How could he be Messiah and Lord to David? He answers all of their interrogations with such deftness and wisdom and clarity and truth that the priests are overwhelmed and they change their mind and they too follow Jesus. They don't follow Jesus. None of them follow Jesus. No matter what he says, how wise and insightful and clear his teaching, they will not listen. Why? That's what I want to dig into this morning because I think it directly applies to each and every one of us in this day and age. You know, um, history goes through a series of mega shifts, seismic shifts that usually take hundreds of years to unfold. We live in a day and age that is so quick we lose sight of the big shifts that are happening. I think from things that I've been reading and others that I've talked to that the issues of the past century, starting about the beginning of the 20th century, are going to be primary issues that continue into the next century. We're not in a one to two year shift. They boil around two main issues. One is anthropology. Anthropology is what does it mean to be human? Who are we and why are we here? Where does human identity come from? Human worth and dignity. What is the purpose of humanity? And this gets into issues that are more hot-button issues like race, sexuality, gender, the beginning of life, the end of life. They're all built around anthropology, which is going to unfold for decades and decades, I believe. The other is one that is actually underneath even how we understand anthropology. It's the word authority. 
authority is this, the basis for what you believe and what you do. It's the main source on which you build your worldview. Now, in the past, in the ancient world and even globally still today, authority was built on tradition in some cultures. Like in a, in a Chinese culture, an ancient Chinese culture, it was what our ancestors passed on to us. In much of the world, even today, and in history, it might have been not built on tradition, but on religion or a god, whether that was Judaism or Christianity or Islam. And then from the Enlightenment on, for, for a long period, authority was based on natural law, the things that were obvious by biology and some of these other things. But today, today we don't have any common authority. Here's what we believe today. There's moral relativism. There's no absolute right or wrong. All of it is culturally conditioned and it's all fluid. And in America and in the West, we have radical individualism on top of, of moral relativism. It basically, everyone is free to do whatever they want as long as it makes you happy. Okay, have I lost you yet? Okay, what we're doing is we're getting philosophical. So if you don't like philosophical stuff today, here's what I want you to do. Try to keep your eyes open, smile, and if my face turns towards you, nod like you're listening. I will not know the difference. I really won't. If you're snoring, I notice. But we're gonna stay in this idea of authority and the philosophy behind it because I think it's actually critical to understanding how we interpret life and the world and most of us are unaware. Okay, so today, today there's no common authority. And I would say nearly every irreconcilable difference boils down to not having a common authority. Social and political divisions, moral and ethical issues, and even many of the disagreements that happen within something like Christianity itself boil down to no common authority. Each of us is trying to figure it out on our own. Authority is the primary issue of our culture. You might think it's something else. It's not. It's authority. And very few of us are aware of it. Here's an illustration that I heard in a sermon. Let's say you have a friend who is suffering from uh, the Cotard delusion. Not sure what that is, right? Let me change the name, walking dead syndrome. So there's an actual syndrome where a person thinks they are not alive. They think they are dead. They're a ghost, they're a zombie. Okay, let's say you have a friend that is convinced he is dead. What do you do? Maybe what you do is you bring him biology books, medical books, anatomy books, and you, you make him read them and you say, see, a dead person has their heart stop beating and they can't bleed. Living people, people who are alive, their heart still beats and, and they bleed. And he goes, yep, yeah, okay, I get that. Yeah, living people bleed. You then grab his hand and stab it with a needle. He screams, ouch! looks down at his hand in amazement. His eyes are big and blood starts oozing out where you poked him. And then you stand back and say, okay, what do you think? And he says, it's amazing. All the books are wrong. Dead people do bleed. <laughs> What's the problem? The problem is you're both operating under different sources of authority. You're presenting science to him and he's giving you his experience. 
you're making reasonable arguments, he's expressing his feelings. Which one has authority? Authority will determine how you see and interpret the world and your life within it. Let's take um, an illustration uh, another one, with a, a young man named Bob. It's a smiley face, uh, you know, little figure here. Um, so here's Bob. He's a high school junior. Let's say he's 17. And first we're going to look at some of the influences in his life, okay? So some of the influences in his life, uh, the things that primarily shape him are, are his peers and his parents and his experiences and his genetics and his belief in God. He has belief in God and his grades, which are really important to him. Uh, science, the internet, the church he goes to, social media, his thoughts, his, his goals, all these things are shaping him, okay? These are the influences on his life. You might be able to add in a few more, but this is just kind of a broad summary of them. Now, from those influences, he will make decisions in the midst of challenging things, and those decisions will be made on the basis of some primary authorities. So let's say, instead, that he has some primary authorities, and here's the question at hand. The question at hand is, he's been dating the same girl for two years. They both love each other. They're ready, should they have sex. 17, dating for two years solidly, should they? The answer to that question has to do not just with your influences, but the things that make up your authority areas. So let's say instead of all these things that are influences, the things that primarily drive him on a daily basis with the decisions he makes are his parents, he really cares about what they think, his feelings, he's definitely an emotional guy, culture, because that's shaped his understanding of what's okay and what's right, his grades, he's always shooting after good grades. He does have a belief in God, and that's important to him, and his desires, he's filled with desire and hungry for things. How will he ultimately decide? Because these might have competing answers to the question, should I have sex with my girlfriend? Right? Ultimately, there will be a greater push and a greater pull from his ultimate authority. Let's say that his ultimate authority is his feelings. What do you think his answer is going to be? You will push down other things and elevate. You'll be defensive. You'll make very clear arguments to yourself. You'll elevate certain arguments and push down others based on whatever is your ultimate authority, whatever you're really building yourself on. That's a question we all need to ask. What influences are your main authorities? What wins when you're conflicted? Which thing has veto power in your life? Which one controls you? Let me briefly give you the Christian view. The Christian view is this. There is a God. He is the authority. The end. But to understand a little bit more of how Christianity understands that authority, it goes like this. We are meant to start with God in order to understand ourselves, not our feelings, our thoughts, our culture, what our peers say. Your own experience has less to do with who you actually are meant to be than what God says about you. That's an impossibility for us, but it's true. We're meant to understand ourselves and interpret the world through God. How do we know God? We know God according to Jesus Christ. He is the revelation of God. You wanna know what God is like? You look to Jesus. How do we know who Jesus is or what he is like? You look to scripture, the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. How do we read the Bible? We don't read it independently in a closet only. We read it in community. 
with others, small group, in a church, locally and globally. We read it not just locally and globally, we read it across history. So that's the idea of the church and tradition. Those things are how we interpret scripture. It's why we cite a creed like the Apostles' Creed. It's how the church has collectively understood what is true and right as we read scripture and understand what we are meant to believe. And so we look to scripture to know Christ so that we can understand what God says about me and the world and his purposes for me. And then we interpret and submit our feelings, our desires, our culture, our peers, our family, our friends, everything else beneath that. This is our actual basic assumption here at Christ Church Vienna. It's why we're constantly in the Bible and we're talking about Jesus. It's why we recite creeds and we rely on historic prayers. Now, if you are a Christian, and I'm not saying everyone in here has kind of fully bought in, but let's say you are, here's what I've experienced talking to other Christians, is you can say yes to this. I believe God, Jesus is my authority. But when push comes to shove, more often than not, your cultural assumptions and your personal experience will always win out. Every culture has assumptions, okay? Every culture has assumptions that shape your reality. It's the air you breathe, it's the water you swim in, so much so that we don't even realize how much the culture that we have grown up in and spent our whole lives, and especially if you've lived in the same culture, how much that shapes us. So as an example, let's take um, two countries in which abortion is legal. And I'm gonna hit on this hot button issue because I think it's actually helpful just to understand the authority beneath it, okay. So in both China and in the US, it's, it's legal to have an abortion, right? But what's the reasoning beneath it? It's very different reasoning. China is a collectivist culture. In other words, what's good for all of us is what we do. It's also an honor and shame culture. And so if you're Chinese and have grown up in the Chinese culture, you see those things, collectivist, honor and shame, and you say, well, yeah, that's the way it is. And in fact, this is the right way. The West is crazy. And for years, abortion has been legal in China because, remember they had the one-child policy, it's been relaxed a little bit, but the one-child policy was basically, this is what's good for everyone. Therefore, you may only have one child. And on top of that, it was girls who were more often aborted than boys because in an honor and shame culture and the elevation of the boy, you didn't want a girl if you could only have one. And we look at that and say it's crazy. But we have a very different set of cultural assumptions. We are an individualist culture and not honor shame, but performance and merit-based culture, right? That individualism says I have the right to do what I want so the reasoning behind legal abortion in the U.S. is not collectivist, it's good for the whole, it's rather choice, autonomy. I can do what I want. And we are most likely to abort what? Somebody with Down syndrome. Because they cannot perform. They'll not succeed. Huh. I'm simply talking about the authority that's underneath the laws. It's very different and your cultural assumptions will shape everything. If you went to China and said, you know what, you now have the choice. It's all freedom, freedom of choice. You can do whatever you want. 
the average Chinese person would still say what's good for everyone. And in America, if you said, you may not have more than one kid, you must abort the rest, I bet we would have way fewer abortions. Everyone would be like, oh yeah, I'm gonna show the government. I'll have 40. (laughs) Every culture disagrees with God in some areas. Every culture. And every person assumes the inherent rightness and superiority of their culture. But the gospel challenges every culture. Ancient Israel was an honor and status culture, and the priests that we are talking about in this uh, passage were completely challenged by the gospel because it upended status. It said that everyone can experience the grace and goodness of God, and it doesn't matter what title or role you have already. All of us are priests, a kingdom of priests. Nepal is a caste culture because it has a Hindu understanding of things. And it's challenging to this day when the gospel comes in and says you're saved by grace because that means a Dalit, an untouchable person, has equal access to God as a Brahmin priest high-level person. That is unthinkable. No one can understand it. And the untouchables are coming to faith in droves. And in the U.S., we struggle with the gospel because it says you're saved by grace. And we say, but what about all my good works? We strive so hard to be good, successful people. And the gospel says, it doesn't matter. The gospel challenges every culture on some level. How many of you are totally unself-aware? And the question is, would you know it if you were? (laughs) There are things that all of us assume absolutely must be true. They're likely a product of our culture. Not saying absolutely, but likely. If you grew up in another place or time, you'd have a whole other set of assumptions and you'd probably think your current assumptions are irrelevant and wrong. And guess what, whatever you buy into just inherently right now, a hundred years from now, the culture will look back on you and your culture's views and think they're absurd and laughable. It happens every 50 to 100 years. Here's our cultural moment. Personal experience, feelings, and desires are my main authority. Our basic viewpoint is everyone must live their own truth and no one can tell me what to do. Personal happiness is the goal of every person. Now even as Christians you kind of push on that but it's actually our starting point even as Christians. Philosopher Charles Taylor summed up our current cultural moment this way he said, Today, moral positions are not in any way grounded in reason or the nature of things, but are ultimately just adopted because each of us, by each of us because we find ourselves drawn to them. He goes on to say, basically no other culture has ever done this, which is this, establish norms and values for themselves on the basis of their own authority. We dictate the ultimate values by which we live. And I think Christians do this too. We decide what parts of Christianity we're gonna accept or reject based on what we want. Or based on what, you know, everyone knows. Everyone knows this. 
And what we end up doing is we reverse the order. We put Christianity and God on trial. Does he line up to my feelings? Does he match what I assume? When it's meant to be the other way around. Our understanding of God should be examining our understanding of ourselves and the world. One blogger who self-identifies as a Christian talks about her approach to life in this way. Be so comfortable in your own skin, your own knowing, that you become more interested in your own joy and freedom than in what others think of you. Now, on some level, this sounds okay. But ultimately, it's a gospel of self-fulfillment. It's neo-Christian. It's an Americanized gospel. She goes on to say something that basically almost sounds right again. God should be equally and unequivocally committed to my happiness as I am. Now, before you critique her, my take is we all want our way. That's how we live our lives. And whatever we do as our way, we assume Jesus is just cool with it. Because he's kind of a cool guy. He welcome, you know, do whatever. Jen Pollock Michael, critiquing that, said, the good life today has been radically redefined according to the benefit of the individual. God's glory, society's health, the community's well-being have been replaced. We are all on the throne now. What is the issue? Boil it down in Christian terms to lordship. Lordship is the issue. Who or what is my authority? How do I decide what's right and true? And I think it's actually the hardest, not when it's just philosophical, but when it gets personal. So here's the question all of us need to be asking. If you actually want to buy into the Christian thing is, what do I do when what God declares across scripture as understood by the church historic and universal is contrary to my desires or my experience or my culture's understanding of everything? It's hard because none of us want to lose power or control. We want to be autonomous. Do what we want. That's what really is the bedrock. And even when we're trying to do what God wants, we struggle to trust him. Does God really have my best in store? Then how can he be against what I feel or what I want? Like the chief priests, Jesus is a threat to their rule and to ours. The Christian take is this. Even if something is what you really want and is culturally okay, isn't harming anyone, makes you happy, everyone else around you agrees. What matters most and only is what does God say about it. Following Christ is hard. If you haven't figured this out, you're not understanding Christ. It's hard. Don't go and decide you're going to do the Jesus thing. I'm going to be a Christian because it'll make your life easier, happier, you'll be more successful. If you become a Christian, everyone will like you. 
if you're following Christ, you will at some point be unpopular, rejected, possibly falsely accused, in some way maligned. You may suffer, and in some places you might even die. At minimum, you will die to self because you are no longer Lord, he is. The gospel needs to become the glasses through which we see the world and ourselves aright, not the other way around. Here's how you know if you're actually trying to do it. If God's word and God's ways are making you uncomfortable in at least some area of your life, let me start naming a few, because that's always a fun thing to do. God cares about black lives. God cares about the gender dysphoric. God cares about the immigrant, even the ones here illegally. God cares about the unborn. God cares about what you do with your body. He cares about your sexuality and what you do with your relationships. He cares about what we do with our money. Well, let me rephrase that, with his money. He cares about our politics our politics are not meant to be lords over our faith. He cares about our life and our lifestyle and everything. He cares about them because he made them. and He made you. And they are his, and so are you. That's one of the underlying themes in the parable that Jesus tells of the wicked tenants. He tells it to the crowds in hearing of the chief priests that a certain landowner of a vineyard went far away, but he leased the land to tenants. Each year he would send his servants to go and retrieve the, the payment, the rent, if you would. But the tenants refused to recognize the servants. They beat them and chased them away. So eventually he says, I know, I must send my son Perhaps they will respect him. He's showing unbelievable grace and mercy and patience. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir, let's kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. A couple of things to note here that Jesus is revealing in this parable is they are the tenants of their land. It doesn't belong to them. Their desire in killing the son is to be lords of the land themselves. The question is, whose land, whose life is it anyway? They refuse to recognize and receive the son, the true lord of the vineyard. And in the telling of the parable, it's indicting the priests, it's indicting all of Israel. Actually, it's indicting all of us. Do you see yourself as a tenant and God is the owner? Or is Lord of your own? 
Jesus, of course, gives that challenging phrase at the end, quoting from the Old Testament, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls in that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls, everyone, anyone will be crushed. It will crush him, sorry. Basically, this is what Jesus is saying. You've got to figure out what you're going to do with me. And that's true with each of us. When it comes down to it, we must decide what we're going to do with Jesus. Is he God's son? Is he the Lord? Is he your Lord? Or are you? Christ will either be your foundation or one day he will be your gallows. Now look, you may, if you're here, you may have doubts, issues, questions. Questions with Christianity, with God, that are totally legit, and I'm not trying to dismiss any of those. So I think there are very conflicting, challenging social issues, political issues, ethical issues, issues with Christianity. But here's what I would suggest, and we see this in Jesus in his interaction with these chief priests. Even if a perfect answer were given to you, it won't convince you if you aren't willing to allow the possibility that Christ could be the Lord. But if you are, know this, there's nothing that Christ can't change in you or ask of you or withhold from you that you won't be willing to give him because he is Lord. Let's pray. God, this is confusing stuff and not easy to get our minds around. I pray that you would orient us rightly. Help us to be aware of our own brokenness and tendencies. To be willing to be changed to have our wealth and our desires and our relationships and our politics and our view of everything come under your lordship. Give us grace where we disagree. Give us grace. It's our only hope. May we see you. In your name we pray, amen.